0: Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at
1: opioidresponse.info. Welcome to uh, Political Rewind. I'm Bill Niga It is just a dismal day weather-wise across the state of Georgia. Here in metro Atlanta, it's dark and rainy, and I was checking the weather for all of you who are listening around the state. Augusta, it's raining. Valdosta, raining. Macon, Columbus, Albany, (laughs) uh, raining. Savannah, it's raining. So uh, I hope you are all cozy and able to be in a warm and dry place to uh, listen to today's edition of Political Rewind. Uh, It was stormy, Inside the Georgia House chamber yesterday morning, too, a kind of a remarkable scene unfolded as uh, Speaker David Ralston ordered a state trooper to remove Representative David Clark from the floor. Uh, Ralston had asked him to leave quietly. He refused to do so, or Ralston didn't want to name the member who has refused repeatedly to take a COVID test which is required twice a week of all members. Uh, And so Ralston, without naming him, him said, whoever this member is, please leave. He wouldn't. So the trooper escorted him out. Um, And uh, the jolt in the AJC is reporting, uh, as we do this show live this morning, that Clark is on his way back down to the Capitol, uh, where he uh, intends to try to get back in. We're going to watch to see how all of that unfolds. and all of this unfolds at a time when we are certain to uh, pass 12,000 deaths from COVID in the state of Georgia, which is uncertain to be in the reports that the state Department of Public Health will release later today. Um, so I, I, we're going to talk a little bit about that to start off with our panel, um, because although Clark is an anomaly, he's the only member who has so far been refusing Uh, The fact of uh, the matter is that he represents a viewpoint of people who feel that their somehow individual liberties are being constrained by trying to obey certain very uh, uh, basic safety measures to prevent the spread of the virus. So we are going to start our show with that. Let me introduce our panel. I'm really thrilled that uh, my colleague Donna Lowry, host of Lawmakers, is here. Uh, Donna, it's great to see you. Uh, We should remind people that you host a show that is the longest-running program on Georgia television. Lawmakers every night, 7 o'clock, during the session on uh, GPB-TV. Of course, Donna had a long and very uh, uh, celebrated career as an education reporter for uh, uh, 11 Alive News here in Atlanta. Thanks for joining us, Donna.
0: Oh, I'm excited to join. And I'm glad when you said we're at 51 years for lawmakers that I haven't been hosting the show for 51 years. Okay, so that's good to know. Let's let's point that out. I have been doing it. But, yeah, it's a wonderful show. And some of the lawmakers are on your show today are, are going to be on the show. And uh, it's been good. It's been a good legislative session to talk about a lot of great stuff. So hope people tune yeah, in on yeah, 7 p.m. Yeah.
1: Um, I do, too. Greg Bluestein is back with us. Greg, of course, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, I've kidded you several times in the last week that I open the AJC now where I just look at the front page and I'm not sure what newspaper I'm reading. I've seen no bylines of yours. Uh, it's, it's just you've been kind of quiet. But it turns out that you announced, and I didn't realize this, that you have now got a contract to write a book about this remarkable uh, sen- Senate race and runoff election, and, and I assume the presidential election in Georgia as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah,
2: it might be remarkable. I might be insane
1: to do this, but my 2020
2: is still not over yet. Um, I'm actually um, semi-off this week doing some of the first rounds of interviews for that, so I've lined up like, th- those like 30 interviews um, for, for this work. Um, that Penguin Random House, an imprint of Penguin Random House, um, bought. Um, I guess it was just two weeks ago. They announced it last week. Um, but uh, it's going to be fun. And I'm going to finish it um, sometime in the next few months. And we'll hope to publish it <laughs> soon after that. So it's been a, a whole new world of uh, learning the book industry for me, but it's been really exciting.
1: Well, congratulations. Do you have a title, a working title?
2: At How least? the Peach Date Turned Purple is the working title. And um, I'll still be working at the AJC. I'm just taking off this week, but um, I'll still be, I'll still be plugging away at the AJC stuff after after a few days of just getting my bearings straight on this book.
1: Well, congratulations! Penguin Random House is a big deal publisher, and it says a lot about uh, how much they think of the work you did covering the election that they want to publish uh, your book. That'll be fun when we finally get to see it. Uh, we're also joined today by two members. Of the State House, who, like uh, Donna Lowry, were witnesses uh, to what happened on the floor yesterday. Representative Chuck F. Stration, uh, Republican from up in Gwinnett County, and the new chair of the Judiciary Committee is with us. And so is Representative Scott Holcomb, a Democrat from Atlanta. Glad to have both of you on, on the show today. Um, Let me do this. I want to get each of you uh, to give us your perspective, those of you who actually saw this unfold. But Donna, let me start with you, because you watched this unfold, and then you actually were one of the people who got an interview with David Clark afterwards. So tell us how this happened, and, and, and then we'll listen to the sound that you got with Clark.
0: Yeah, right. So we first it's first started off with the speaker just talking and saying that saying that he did, wanted to be discreet, but he there was a member who was was not doing the protocol, the safety protocols when it came to testing, and that he was go, not going to mention any names, but he basically wanted that person to leave, and then. Um, That person didn't leave. And as I understand it, so those of us with the press were all looking around to try to find out where the person was. And let me back up and explain how the house looks right now. They're in three places. The membership is on the floor, up in the gallery, and in room 341. So, um, those who were in 341, who some of them, um, call it the kitty room It really didn't know what was going on over in the, the bigger room uh, said that they started leaving so they could find out because they didn't know a lot of them uh, did not know who was the person who was uh, the speaker was talking about. At any rate, Clark had been told not to come. He did come. He didn't go to his seat, which was apparently up in the gallery. He was on the floor at the back of the house. And at that point, the speaker also asked had, had to say it again and asked the state patrol to remove him. He was removed. He did so quietly um, at that point, but he did go down to the first floor and he talked to all of us who wanted to talk with him. Uh, he was pretty upset about it, angry. He claims that the reason he did it was because everybody doesn't have access to testing. Uh, the House uh, well, the, the entire um, General Assembly is being asked twice a, a week to be tested for the COVID-19 um, virus, and he has not done it at all. I, he, he says he has never been tested uh, during this pandemic, pandemic, and uh, he doesn't want to be until everybody has access to testing.
1: So so, so before we listen to the sound that you got with him, um, let me ask both uh, uh, Chuck and Scott about this. Um, Chuck, the speaker made it clear before the session started that, that we're going to do everything possible to protect the health of all of you, including this twice-a-week testing, including this effort to space you all out. And to the best of my knowledge, virtually everyone, except for the first couple of days when people were getting used to it, virtually every month one has complied with this twice-a-week testing requirement, Yes.
3: Yes, that's right. I mean, I, there, there, uh, the rules have been very clear, and uh, there haven't hasn't been uh, any outward opposition or, or question about it. Uh, I suppose until yesterday, and uh, the, uh it was even made known to House members that if you uh, didn't test uh, last week, that uh, you wouldn't be admitted on the floor, or be able to stay on the floor. I think David Clark's actions are unfortunate. Uh, his refusal to test is reckless and irresponsible. He's endangering others at the state capitol. Uh, there are frontline professionals who have to test all of the time right now, and he is setting a very bad example, sending a poor example for Georgians uh, by uh, by engaging this. I hope he reconsiders and and uh, will be tested.
1: Um, Scott, it isn't as if David Clark hasn't been kind of a rebel rouser already. He was the, he's a Republican from Buford, we should say. He challenged David Ralston for the speaker's job, didn't get very far. So he is known to be somebody who uh, calls attention to himself and uh, tends to flaunt uh, the rules. But, but, but Scott, um, this question about individual liberty as opposed to uh, safeguarding a community Is one that keeps coming up over and over, which is why we talk about it. It it was an anomaly, but it it represents a a point of view that is still uh, at large in the state of Georgia in some communities.
4: I I agree with that, Bill, and I I think some members would say that the most dangerous place in the Capitol is between David Clark and a television camera. Uh, So I'll start with that. Um, And. And in terms of individual liberty, sure, I get it. But I'll also point out that I'm a veteran, David's a veteran. We had to get all kinds of shots that we didn't want when we were in the service. And we did so because it was for everyone's better health. And and it's just a common sense thing to do. And what the speaker has done is to set up, as Chairman of said, a very simple system. We get tested in the building. It takes about a minute. It's not inconvenient. And I think that Representative Clark just came up with his excuse after the fact, after he got busted and he tried to come up with something to make it because it is ridiculous and he should just get tested and move on with it if he wants to serve his district. Otherwise, he's not going to be. All right. All
1: right. Let's um, listen to what he uh, uh, the the sound that that Donna captured uh, with David Clark after he was kicked out of the chamber yesterday.
2: It's, it's discriminating. I mean, there's no mandate out there saying we have to do this. Um, I mean, next they could say they don't like it because of socks that you have on or anything. I mean, this has happened in politics. I mean, the people are sitting down here. I'm allowed to come represent them. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not disrupting. I'm going to my seat. I'm, I'm sitting six feet away. It, it, it's, I'm not putting people in danger.
1: Greg, what's interesting about this, at the very moment that uh, Clark was uh, being kicked out and then defending his right not to be tested, Governor Kemp was holding a news conference in uh, which he tried to update people on the status, especially of the lack of vaccines right now in the state. But, you know, for, uh, it's just such a an, an strange contradiction between um, what we're trying to do to protect people in the state and what uh, and what this kind of this act uh, uh, suggests.
2: Yeah, what a dichotomy on two different floors of the Capitol at the same time. Uh, this being ha- this happening with David Clark and the governor uh, talking about the, the state's continuing struggles to vaccinate uh, people who are in that class—the uh, first responders, hospital workers, um, people over 65—in that first class of people who need to be vaccinated. Uh, I talked to President Clark shortly after as well, and he basically said he's coming back on the floor. This morning, and he threatened to take legal action because he called the he he used a phrase that he's used before when he described Speaker and He called him a dictator. Um, but what he didn't mention was that the House House members agreed to these rules. This was not something in, uh, forced upon them. It was agreed to early on um, as a part of them returning to the Capitol under under safe conditions.
1: Um, There is an irony here, uh, Donna. Uh, He happens to be David Clark, the son-in-law of Senator Brandon Beach, uh, the Republican from Alpharetta, who during the last session uh, caused real uh, uh, turmoil when it turned out that he came to the Capitol during the previous session, knowing that he had tested positive to for the virus and exposing. Uh, his colleagues over on the Senate side. Uh, So uh, David Clark uh, seems to be continuing a family tradition of not paying the kind of attention to the virus that most people are.
0: I think a lot of people would agree with that. A lot of people who who, uh, there were several senators who did get the virus because of and blame Brandon Beach for that. Some of them were very angry about it. The other thing about it is that he came for several days. Actually, he was on he was on lawmakers, and I was one of the people who had to was reform, informed early on to quarantine because uh, he'd been at the Capitol and been on our show, and our entire crew was exposed. So yes, this seems to be a, a kind of a family issue, something that they're all um, pushing against that this virus exists and that. Testing needs to take place, and this whole idea of these uh, liberties that they feel that they have—not to take the—not um, to take precautions to protect others, whether it's themselves—you know—that's one thing, but protecting others, they don't seem to be to care about that.
1: All right, so we will look. As I said, you know, this is one person. Uh, it, it's great to know that the rest of the General Assembly has been complying with the, the rules that have been laid out. Um, and so I don't want to go too far overboard in just talking about David Clark. We will watch today to see how this unfolds. Uh, the speaker has made it clear he's not going to let uh, Clark back on the floor. He's not even allowing him in his office until he gets tested. So we'll watch and see how it unfolds. But but Greg, um, this leads to a- another story that involves the coronavirus in Georgia That that is a significant one, I think, um, the your colleagues at the AJC yesterday reported that in the middle of this pandemic, um, the governor's request for funding for the Department of Public Health is, as your reporters described it, a minuscule increase. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, my colleague Alan Judd reported that uh, basically um, – the, the, the state public health department is getting, um, just from the state at least, is getting uh, a very small increase in funding from the governor's proposal. There are House lawmakers who want it to be more substantial. Uh, the governor's office responds that that they're getting federal funding, uh, a surge of federal funding that will take the place of of whatever state funding could have come in um, from the state budget proposal. But public health experts have been saying that the state state's public health network has been underfunded for years, for decades, and that this pandemic should be a wake-up call to better bolster the infrastructure of the public public health system.
1: Um, Scott and then Chuck, uh, weigh in on, on, on this, if you would. Scott?
4: Sure. I, I asked a question about it in the Appropriations Committee because it jumped out at me that line items, Um, included epidemiology, zero uh, additional dollars, vaccination, zero additional dollars. And it looked um, pretty skimpy in terms of the investment. And I think one of the takeaways of the pandemic should be the importance of public health. And while I recognize that the federal government has largely been um, paying for the response to the pandemic. It's also incumbent upon the state to make appropriate investments in public health beyond that. Georgia has very bad rates of chronic health uh, problems. We have a lot of other issues besides the pandemic that I think need to be addressed. And one of the smartest investments that we can make is in public health. And I've actually taken a look at this and researched it. And what's interesting about public health spending is, one, it has declined kind of across the board in states nationally over the last decade or so. But in terms of the benefits, you get benefits not only in the year in which you make those appropriations, but long term, because the idea is that the interventions help make a healthier populace, and then you can save money over the long term. So I'm generally supportive of more dollars for health.
3: I just came from the appropriations meeting this morning before joining you on on this interview, and uh, certainly from my reading into the budget and the uh, review of uh, expected uh, drawdown dollars from the federal government, as, as well as effective use of the, of the dollars that are in the budget. It's clear to me that fighting the pandemic is a top priority of the Georgia General Assembly, that, um, that uh, Georgians being healthy and that there being good public health policy put forward is a top priority here at the state capitol. Uh, that's certainly uh, the impression that I've uh, received from the budget, and I expect that's not going to change as the as the uh, budget's considered.
1: Chuck, could you help uh, uh, explain to us what you're seeing? Uh, uh, given, uh, are you saying the reporting from the AJC is incorrect that the increase the governor's requested for the Department of Public Health is, as they describe it, minuscule, or are you seeing other lines on the state budget that will Uh, uh, make you feel confident that the state is working on the virus and other issues? Is it the federal dollars? What are you uh, uh, citing when you say the commitment is so uh, strong?
3: So effective use of the dollars that we receive include when there are federal funds appropriated for certain uses and we're able to fill uh, gaps we may otherwise have in the budget. I think that that is uh, important to consider. And the, um, uh, you know, I'm not a public health expert, but as I look to the administration of the department of public health right now, the availability of vaccines so that Georgians can be vaccinated is a top priority. And that may not correspond to a specific line item appropriation in the budget. Um, I think that uh, these are complex issues and uh, just a, a simple dollar amount may not reflect the priority that, that is there. And, and that's important for, for Georgians to know.
4: Scott. Um. Yeah, I think it, it's, It's probably a difference of opinion in terms of the role that federal dollars are playing for right now to address the pandemic and making investments for the longer term for the state, which I think those dollars are going to be state dollars and our responsibility to make um, those investments in interventions and education and treatment, all those things. Because on, on most health metrics, Georgia is not doing well. We rank in the bottom 10 on almost everything. And I don't think anybody would 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 say that that's where we want to be.
1: So, um, Greg and, and Donna, I'm as we've talked about funding for coronavirus, and for that matter, for preparing for the viruses that public health officials tell us are likely to be coming our way in the years ahead. Um, when we talk about the vaccine. When we talk about federal dollars flowing into the states, it it seemed to me about a week or so ago that it was easy to look at the local public health departments, Fulton County, DeKalb County, Cobb County, the others uh, public health districts around the state, and say, what's wrong with you people? Why aren't you getting the vaccine out? Why aren't you doing more to stop coronavirus? And then you realize, well, it's that the state, uh, is uh, not doing all it can to uh, to help the local public health districts, and then you say, "Oh no, it's not that. It's that uh, the feds have not been doing." This starts rolling downhill, Greg, and uh, you you can't help but wonder uh, where we're going to end up with. A coordinated effort on all of these things.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of finger pointing going on, and some of it stems from President Trump's uh, strategy, which was to leave it up to the states to really figure out their own vaccine distribution plans, um, which has led a lot of counties, a lot of a, lo- a lot of uh, convenience stores, Publixes, the, the Krogers of the world, um, you know, shorthanded sometimes. You've, you've seen. Um, uh, vaccines being canceled, second doses being canceled for so many people because the, the expected shipments um, have not come in. And gu- the governor warned yesterday, that hey, they're planning for more shipments, but they also can't control uh, a lot of those logistics. But what the concern with with the budget is that all this federal money flowing in, and there is a lot of federal funding flowing in is a one-time. It's a one-time surge. What it's not going to do is set up that lasting infrastructure. And when it comes to the state's proposal, um, we're talking about an increase of about $900,000, so less than a million dollars going in uh, to the public health budget of, of new state funding, lasting state funding. But none of that new money actually addresses the pandemic um a chunk of it is licensing program for tattoo parlors and so that's where public health experts are stepping in and saying what we need is a broader infrastructure plan um to cope with the next era of 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 pandemics and threats uh to make sure that this doesn't happen again
0: yeah i i agree um i think i uh Bill, when it comes to what people know about the health department, I think this pandemic has really illuminated what they're all about. I mean, I think there are people who had no idea how the process worked, and many people blamed their local county health departments when they had any issues. And they've come to realize that this is a state issue and with this pandemic, uh, the federal part of it. And I I think it is – I think there are a lot of people who are going to be uh, who are frustrated by the way the system exists right now, and want to see the health departments shored up a lot better than they are right now. And it looks like we're not going to see that. And the sad part is for a lot of people, the public health departments were where they, where the, the poorest of the poor went. Most people, if they needed medical help, went to their private physicians. People who don't have those private physicians ended up at public health departments. And now we know probably um, that the health departments didn't have the resources to do all they needed to do for those, those uh, patients.
1: All right, let's do this. We've got a lot more to cover on Political Rewind today, but this is a good time to take our first break in the show. We will do that and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. <laughs> Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, we're joined today by Donna Lowry, host of GPB TV's The Lawmakers, uh, Representative Scott Holcomb, Democrat from Atlanta, Representative Chuck F. Stration, Republican from up in Gwinnett County, and our regular Wednesday AJC partner on this show, Greg Balloustein, uh, is with us as well. Uh, Chuck F. Stration, uh, I mentioned that you are chairing the Judiciary Committee uh, this year, big assignment. Um, you're, you, one of the things you said right before we went on the air was that it, it's a great perch from which to address some of the ongoing criminal justice issues that you have expressed concern about. The first piece of that being uh, you're working in a bipartisan way to pass the first hate crimes uh, law in the state in a couple of decades. Uh, but you have a, just give us a quick look at a couple of the other major pieces that you're uh, trying to uh, get through the General Assembly this session.
3: Well, as we were discussing, this is really a carrying forward of the work that's been done previously uh, by my introduction of, uh, and passage of the Georgia Hate Crimes Act and then my previous work on the Georgia Council on Criminal Justice Reform, a continuation of that effort is looking at a repeal of the state's citizen's arrest statute, which law enforcement, uh, prosecutors, really folks across the political spectrum agree. It's a law that's on the books that is really uh, open to abuse. It's not utilized currently. And um, in the Ahmad Arbery case was actually used to initially justify uh, an unlawful act. And so uh, so the the question is addressing that. Governor Kemp has indicated that his administration is going to take on that issue. So we're really uh, holding tight to to see what that might entail. But I've been in communication with advocates about a host of other issues, and I do expect there's going to be several bills coming in this legislative session to uh, deal uh, with that, including repeal of uh, citizen's arrest um, and uh, also other necessary reforms uh, related to uh, uh, pretrial diversion, avoiding ultimate uh, conviction for uh, certain low-level offenders uh, so that they're on a path uh, uh, towards uh, putting bad decisions behind them and not on a, a path toward recidivism and continuing to, uh, to be in the system. That is, uh, I think, a bipartisan concern and something that uh, many legislators are looking to, to try to correct.
1: Scott, I think this is a case where words do obviously matter. Uh, Chuck Efstration just talked about repeal of citizens arrest, I believe, and I think Donald Lowry will wanna weigh in in a second, but first uh, you, uh, that the governor has talked about some sort of reform of citizens arrest.
4: Um, correct, and, and let me just take a moment to say, um, we live in a very, very challenging political time that is hyper-partisan, often very negative partisan, in Georgia, we do things very differently. And, and I think that the, the public needs to know that. And I want to just take a moment to just say that Chairman administration has really done great work when it comes to bipartisanship. And in Georgia, we actually can come together on bipartisan important issues. And that's important for people to know and to understand. At the state level, we do that. Uh, and and Chairman administration has really been a leader for many years uh, on these issues. And... Um, I serve on the Judiciary Committee with him, and I'm looking forward to doing um, some good work. I support the chairman's position on this. I think repeal is probably the way to go, and I think we're going to have an interesting, important debate about that. It's 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 a critical issue. It's something that affects people's lives. It's an issue that affects justice, and we're having some really good conversations about the best way to go in a thoughtful, appropriate, reasonable manner. So... Um, uh, I'm kind of excited about what we're going to achieve this this, uh, this session.
0: Yeah. Of course, all of this comes out of Ahmad Ar- Arbery's death down in the Brunswick area with the citizens arrest, uh, the, the father and son using that as their um, reason um, that, that led to his, uh, to Arbery being shot and killed. And so there are a lot of people who feel that because Citizen's arrest law in Georgia comes out of the post Civil War era, that it is outdated and needs to completely go. So, that repeal part of it is important to a lot of people. I think it'll get national attention because of that. The reform part of it, uh, there are some arguments that deal with some of the things that come up, whether or not uh, somebody who is stopping a shoplifter, for instance, a security guard at Maybe a Walmart stops a shoplifter, and whether or not they're able to detain them, uh, whether or not someone leaving a restaurant who doesn't pay, whether somebody is able to detain them. Uh, so I think that that's the reform part, maybe that the, um, the 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 governor and some of the others are looking to. But there will it will be hard to get this through, I think. Um, and uh, Representative Chuck uh, uh, can deal deal with this a little bit more. That uh, it'll be hard for some people to swallow just reforming it and not repealing it entirely, especially based on the history uh, from which it comes.
1: Uh, so Chuck, uh, Donna makes a really excellent point. Uh, these, these are not necessarily, and Scott essentially alluded to it too. Uh, it sounds like this is simple. Let's just get rid of citizen's arrest. But, but, but there are complications that the public who follows this legislation should be aware of.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. This is a very complex issue when you really get below the surface, and that includes uh, the shoplifting conditions that Donna mentioned, um, Mm -hmm. private security, uh, potentially uh, uh, public and private investigators, and all kinds of different groups that may uh, know that that statute is out there and may be concerned about uh, an impact to it. And as I was saying uh, earlier, you know, the uh, working together with these groups to ensure that. A repeal also uh, will allow for, say, the shopkeeper's privilege to be, uh, to be still intact, is uh, part of the negotiation that's been taking place. Uh, the committee that I chair actually held uh, committee meetings in this since uh, last session to really work on uh, determining what that language would be. And, um, and so I look forward to seeing the uh, proposal put, up, put out by Governor Kemp, and, um, and, uh, and certainly if it comes to the committee that I chair. Us having this in depth uh, discussion. Uh, repeal is, uh, and I appreciate uh, Representative Holcomb's comments, but I think the bipartisan interest in addressing a repeal is uh, very real, and I expect that uh, there will be a uh, great potential to see that through this legislative session.
1: Uh, Greg, because you are the ultimate kind of political. Uh, journalist, you're already starting to look at 22 election races. (laughs) Uh, And one of the things you've talked about is, uh, and you've written about, and I want to talk about it in more depth in a a couple minutes, is uh, that Governor Kemp is now getting set to, uh, uh, we're now seeing the shape of how he plans to run for re-election. But before we talk about that in a larger sense, citizens arrest, uh, it, it, it strikes me that it is not a terribly... Uh, uh, toxic issue for the governor as he approaches re-election, or am I wrong about that?
2: It was part, you know, I think to me in his State of the State speech just two weeks ago, that was maybe one of the standout policy decisions he he announced. He didn't talk about, he had said in an interview earlier to me that he supported voter ID um, restrictions for absentee ballots, but he didn't mention that at all in the State of the State speech. Instead, he did he talked about reforming, not repealing, but in his words, reforming the citizens arrest law as a sort of bipartisan um, effort that really marked a more conciliatory tone in that entire speech. Um, but I should note, you know, to Donna's point of how hard this will be, as he said that uh, Republican State Senator Tyler Harper um, was in uh, was in another part, was in the Senate listening, and was visibly shaking his head no, you know, his, his opposition to this. Uh, and we reported that Maya Prabhu, or my colleague, was, was there watching them. And that just speaks to the challenges ahead, because there are some who are um, just outright against these types of changes. They feel they, they feel like uh, uh, that it can erode criminal justice laws. Um, so it will not be easy, even though there's bipartisan support. There will still be some obstacles for for Representatives Holcomb and Estrichen to jump through. Uh, before they get this to the governor's desk.
1: Okay, so so I'm I'm wrong. So this could become a, a very partisan kind of issue uh, at that conservative Republicans at a time when Governor Kemp may be facing a, a primary challenge from somebody to his right uh, that uh, could prove difficult for him to deal with and for Efstration and Hocum to deal with as members of the Judiciary Committee.
2: Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of political capital the governor puts behind this. You know, does he... Uh, we we still haven't seen his proposal, but does he put his full the full weight of his office behind it? It seems like he will because he he did focus a section of his state of the state speech on this. So that
1: that's my hunch. Is that what he's going to do, Chuck?
3: Well, I, I I don't know. I haven't been been uh, been told that, <laughs> but uh, but I think that this is part of uh, his package. Certainly on. Earlier this week, uh, his administration announced anti-human trafficking measures. There are uh, several other uh, bills that I expect uh, will be coming, and um, <clears throat> with with all of that legislation, we'll need to see how it looks when it's introduced. And uh, we have a very thorough vetting process in the House Judiciary Committee, where uh, all bills assigned to our committee will be will be thoroughly reviewed.
1: Okay, um, why don't we talk? Let's talk about another uh, hot button legislative issue that will certainly uh, be generating a lot of attention this session. Uh, Greg Bluestein, um, we know that uh, Brad Raffensberger and uh, a number of Republicans uh, plan on pushing hard for reforms to absentee voting in the state of Georgia after the 2020 elections, in which absentee voting was such an enormously popular way to cast. Uh, ballots and just as a, a an, an ancillary part of that, in the last week, uh, Gwinnett County's uh, election director, Alice Olenick, got herself in a little bit of trouble, Greg, with the with the Gwinnett newspaper, the Gwinnett Post, I think it is, uh, when she said that she really hopes the legislature will do something about no excuse absentee voting, and her quote was to give Republicans quote at least a shot at Winning, there's, that's kind of hiding in plain sight, Greg. <laughs>
2: yeah, she said the quiet part out loud is uh, coming under a firestorm <laughs> of criticism, including from some Republicans, but many Democrats who call for her uh, to resign that post that's supposed to be, you know, um, uh, a fair arbiter of, of elections. But really, the, what, what this sort of underscores is a fight about absentee ballots in Georgia. Um, you've seen from legislative leaders, from Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan just yesterday, um, saying that he does not support the push to end no-excuse absentee ballots like some of his colleagues in the the Georgia Senate uh, do. Um, But you've also heard both him, Speaker Ralston, and Governor Kemp all endorse the idea of some sort of ID verification for absentee ballots. I think there's a good chance of some version of that legislation passing this year. We're not sure if it means scanning your, your ID, your driver's license, Uh, If there's some sort of um, computer verification process, we've seen different proposals, but we haven't seen a final, you know, piece come up yet. But that's going to be a really uh, big fight in this legislative process.
1: Scott, uh, I believe that Speaker Ralston has made it clear that he's not going to be supportive of eliminating no excuse absentee balloting. But that doesn't mean he's not interested in uh, toughening uh, ID requirements for absentee balloting. So as Greg points out, this is going to be a big fight this session.
4: I agree, and, and we're ready for it. Um, and in terms of my view on it, is I don't think that you change the system simply because you don't like the outcome of a single race during an election system. And let's keep in mind that we're in a pandemic. I always vote in person. I did not this year. I voted by absentee ballot because i thought that it was a safer thing to do so going forward we're going to see lower levels of absentee ballots but there are um, checks and balances within the process by way of example overwhelmingly absentee ballots are mailed to people to their home address and so they check to make sure that it is that actual person there are minor exceptions for people who are at college or military service members um, things like that, but the system has checks and balances within it. And I think, uh, from from my perspective, one of I'm I'm certainly fine with exploring ways to make the system more secure. I think everybody wants the vote to be accurate and secure. But at the same token, we need to make sure that any moves that we make don't disenfranchise people. Um, and so that's the issue in terms of the policy. The other part of this is just in terms of the politics. Um, I would caution Republicans to be very careful on this. Um, Stacey Abrams coming, and I think if they push this through, they're just going to give her another thing to run on in terms of voter suppression. And I would be very careful about thinking through that, whether that's a, a sound strategy politically.
1: Well, uh, you know, Chuck. Uh... Chuck, let me just mention one thing, and I, I do want you to weigh in. On this show just a couple of weeks ago, Calvin Smirey, uh, the dean of uh, the Georgia House, uh, made a, a surprise, Jim Galloway and I, when we talked about this issue, he made a very impassioned statement about saying, we will draw the line on any efforts to roll back our rights uh, to vote. Speaking as a as an African American, uh, especially it was a powerful statement, and, uh, and, and I also think a warning to Republicans about the ground on which this fight could be waged.
3: Well, I agree with Representative Holcomb's statement that Georgians want to know that their elections are accurate and secure. And what I've observed is in 2018, Georgia Democrats expressed their belief that there was, some, uh, that there was something improper about the outcome of the election, and then, certain Republicans in 2020 expressed concerns, and so we've heard these concerns expressed by both members of both political parties. And so, uh, any work by the General Assembly to look into that to ensure that Georgians are uh, able to fully trust that uh, that the election results are accurate, I think is uh, is a good thing. And um, and so, I'll uh, I, you know I'll just be waiting to see what that potential legislation will look like this year.
0: Yeah, I think the interesting thing about all of this is that uh, prior to this pandemic, there were a lot of people didn't even pay attention to absentee balloting. Uh, it was something that you thought more about uh, people who are overseas uh, um, dealing with. But now there's a, a lot of interest in it. Uh, that people, There are a lot of people who feel that it is important that we have an aging population, and they are not interested in necessarily going to um, vote in person anymore and then before and until we get through this pandemic now we had we've had all of these elections and you know and in the last few months at different levels i live in the fifth district i think we had more than anybody else um because of the john lewis seat but yeah. so people are really tired of voting and then to have these issues kind of put um, become stumbling blocks to their ability to vote uh, there's going to be a lot of pushback towards any in anything that um that changes the way we were able to vote this last um, election cycle.
1: Okay. Uh, Donna, thank you for that. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on this edition of Political Rewind. (music) Quick program note. Uh, Most of you know that yesterday uh, President Biden began uh, laying out the plans he has to address the issue of systemic racism in the United States. Um, and we decided we wanted to move quickly on uh, looking at that. So tomorrow we are going to have a panel of some of the most thoughtful advocates for uh, civil and human rights uh, that we could find to talk about that issue and where we stand since the demonstrations of this past summer uh, um Cauterize public opinion about dealing with racial justice. That'll be on the show tomorrow. Uh, Greg Bluestein, okay, I mentioned it a few minutes ago. You wrote a piece saying uh, Governor Kemp's strategy for re election is beginning to take shape. Uh, I'd ask you to tell us what that means, but also. Uh, point out that Maggie Haberman in the New York Times yesterday wrote a piece in which she said Brian Kemp is still <laughs> is Trump's number one target for defeating in the 2022 election. So how's all that unfolding, Greg? <laughs> Yeah, that's astounding too. Given that that Trump
2: has more sort of enemies on his list now, that you have ten House Republicans who voted to support the impeachment, and you'll have um, you have now five Senate Republicans who who voted essentially to move forward on the impeachment trial. So there's there's other enemies, uh, uh, there's other people in those dark corners of <laughs> of Trump's uh, no go place in his heart uh, who, who joined Governor Kemp, but Governor Kemp still has that special spot, according to Maggie's reporting. <laughs> Um, and that's going to shape 2022. Um, the governor is going with a different strategic team um, to lead his reelection efforts. And that really dovetails with um, the hire of Trey Kilpatrick to, uh, to lead his uh, his office. Um, Bobby Sapporo, who's a longtime aide to uh, Drew Ferguson, is going to be his, his new campaign consultant, um, taking the place of Ryan Mahoney, and Jeremy Brand, two um, two strategists who have been with him for years, uh, they'll, they'll they're not going they're not out of the Kemp world. They're they're helping direct efforts from the outside. But it does reflect a sort of different tonal strategy. We'll see how different it is, but we're already starting to see the roots of that take shape. Um, with that speech, I, I just spoke about the State of the State speech was much more um, conciliatory than we've seen from the governor. Uh, I'm not. You you know, we're not ready to say he's this bipartisan, you know, he's still he's still the first lifelong Republican governor in in Georgia history. And he's still very conservative. Um, But we'll see if he he extends more olive branches across party lines as he gears up for not only a primary challenge um, from someone who's backed by Trump. We're we're not sure who that is going to be quite yet. But also, as as uh, Scott mentioned, uh, a likely rematch against Stacey Abrams next
1: year. Okay, Chuck. We want you to get us behind the scenes here. How much whispering is going on among your Republican colleagues down at the Capitol about the challenge that Brian Kemp very well may face in a, in a primary in 2022 and how disturbing is it to many Republicans who feel that getting divided like that may put a, a Democrat, perhaps Stacey Abrams in office?
3: Well, I think anytime that you have a, uh... Uh, loss in the presidential election. There's a lot. There are uh, some questions, finger pointing that that occur within a political party. But my um, I, I do think that there's consensus agreement that division is bad for uh, Republicans uh, being being reelected going forward and that we need uh, uh unified voice and and uh, effort to talk about many of the great things that we're doing, which I think were reflected in the wins that Republicans had in Georgia legislative races, in 2020, uh, just down ballot from the presidential race, Republicans did very well. And, uh, and so I, I, uh, those conversations are happening as they always do in a place with a, uh, people who have uh, po- political minds. Uh, certainly you're always uh, talking about elections, upcoming elections and, and things like that. But I think that there's an understanding and consensus that support of uh, uh, Republican incumbents who are, uh, who are doing good work is uh, good is good for the party, and I expect you'll be hearing more of that.
1: All right. So let me ask you this: Are the Kemp people already talking to you and your Republican colleagues? Have they already locking up your support for his re-election campaign? So I haven't. Or spoken trying to. to? Go-
3: I haven't spoken to Governor Kemp's uh, re-election campaign, but uh, but I think that uh, he has been willing to take on some really big issues facing the state. And I'll just tell you on the hate crimes bill when I when I carried that bill and uh, brought it for. Uh, You know, when it passed the General Assembly, uh, Governor Kemp signed it immediately. He didn't even wait until the General Assembly left uh, legislative session. So uh, I expect I mean, that's that's who he is and that's uh, his record that he's built over his administration. And um, and so I expect a continuation of that and there to be no change uh, this legislative session.
1: So, so Scott, uh, two things about that. Number one, uh, do you imagine the Democrats will have an opening as this interparty f- uh, feud continues among Republicans? And number two, do you think Democrats in the General Assembly may have an opening if Greg Bluestein is right that Kemp sees his path forward as being a little bit more uh, conciliatory, bipartisan in nature? Uh,
4: let me, Let me start with the second one first. I, I've noticed it um, this session, Trey uh, Calc. Trey Kilpatrick coming in, uh, I think, has set a different tone. And I've had conversations with the governor's office about trying to find some bipartisan areas where we can work together. So uh, I try to be fair in in both my um, criticisms and and compliments. And they've they've done that. They've reached out. And so I certainly appreciate that. And so we'll see where it it winds up at the end of the year with legislation that's passed Um, in terms of the politics. I'd I'd be stunned if there aren't primaries on the Republican side. I think that there's real angst among um, their supporters in terms of which way the party goes. There's uh, different directions and different worldviews that are going to have to be reconciled. Um, But I think what's really interesting is, ordinarily, I would suggest that in a a midterm election, um, that's generally bad for the party that's out of power in the White House. In Georgia, I don't know that that's the case anymore. I think that we're to a place where it really is a get-out-the-vote of your supporters, and there's very little elasticity in the electorate. So I think we're going to have a really interesting election come 2022.
1: We are almost out of time. So, Donna Lowry, uh, I, I do want to give you a chance before we do finish this show to give us a, a, a look at what you've got coming up on uh, Lawmakers, which, again, uh, is on the air on Georgia Public Television tonight at 7 p.m.
0: Yes, that's right. So, tonight we're going to look at two issues. We're going to look at the budget, and we're going to talk about education. As we understand, the governor's education package is is getting there and, and shaping up. So, we're going to talk about that. We have Senator Chuck uh of Settler, We have Representative James Beverly, both talking about the budget, and then Senator Lester Jackson and Representative uh, Chris Irwin, we believe, will be talking about education. So we'll talk about that tonight. And then what happens during the day, and of course, uh, we will be checking to see whether um, anything happens with Representative uh, Clark um, when it comes to uh, what he's going to do on the House floor. Because he says he. Uh, we understand he's going to be there. So we'll keep you up to date.
1: By the way, uh, speaking of education, uh, Bluestein, we've just learned that Marjorie Taylor Greene has uh, – her one of her committee assignments is House education. I can't even begin to imagine what some of her thoughts are on what to do about education in this country.
2: Yeah, we all knew that she, she said that she would be a nightmare for Democrats, but Republicans, <laughs> the moment she said that, say, no, she's going to be a nightmare for us as well. So that's happening.
1: All right, Uh, we are completely out of time. By the way, I've been trying to not talk too much about Marjorie Taylor Greene because it's so easy to fall into the trap of giving her a lot of oxygen for some of her extreme beliefs. The fact of the matter is, suddenly the country, big media organizations are paying attention to her, and I think on the show on Friday we're going to have to dig in a little deeper on that. Chuck Efstration, Scott Hokum, Donna Lowry, Greg Blustein, thank you so much for being here Um, Sam Burmistaz, Amelia Brock, Jesse Neiswanger, thank you for everything you've done for today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. Back tomorrow in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and yes, please keep wearing not just one mask. Now CDC says wear two of them. See you all tomorrow.